Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. Now today is a special one because not only is it our 20th episode but it's also the last episode of season two which means that the team at Save Our Seas has assembled once again to answer as many of your questions as we possibly can in the space of one episode. So a few weeks ago we put out a call on social media asking you to ask us anything about sharks and you did not disappoint. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in a question, they're super interesting and I think we managed to get through all of them so stay tuned. But if if you asked a question and you want to jump straight to where that question was answered, you can see that in the timestamps of this episode in the show notes on the World of Sharks website. Uh, So you can jump straight to that if you want to. But we do cover a lot of really super interesting topics like how baby sharks get out of their egg cases, whether swimming with whale sharks is safe, whether baiting for sharks is a bad thing, has bad effects, and also some advice on marine science and marine conservation careers. So there's a little bit of something for everyone in this episode. Before we jump into it, I just want to say a massive thank you to all of you for listening to this podcast, for all of your lovely comments and feedback. We really, really appreciate it. And we love hearing from you. We've even had a listener write in to say they listened to us while doing their PhD on stingrays, which is so cool. I'm really glad that we can keep you company and maybe in the future you can be on the podcast and we can learn more about your work because stingrays are awesome. Just a reminder that while we are taking a break, you can still get in touch by emailing isla at saverseas.com. Please let me know if you have any questions you'd like answered, any particular topics or species you'd like us to focus on. This podcast is for you. So if there is something you've always wanted to know about sharks, rays or the oceans, then give us a shout and we will pitch it to an expert. We'll be back in September with some really exciting episodes. We may or may not be covering whale sharks, great white sharks and prehistoric seas among many other things. So keep an eye out on social media where we will keep you updated on all things whole tooth. Okay, we have a lot of questions to get through for today's Ask Us Anything. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth. I am sitting here with Jade, Lauren and James, the whole Save Our Seas crew. Hello guys and welcome back to The Whole Tooth podcast. Hi Isla. Hello, well thank you very much for having us back. Thanks Isla, hi, hi. Well I said welcome back because Jade and James were on our previous Ask Us Anything but we have Lauren joining us as well so just welcome to Lauren, it's really nice to have you. Um, and so we've got a fair few questions to get through, but first I'm going to go around everybody and just get you to say who you are and what your role is at the Save Our Seas Foundation. So James, I will start with you. Cool, thanks very much Isla and yeah, uh, hi again everyone. My name's James and I'm the CEO of the Save Our Seas Foundation, uh, which yeah, basically means I sort of get to make sure everything's ticking over okay and get involved in all the grant reviews and sort of the general 
overview of the foundation. Um, it's a little bit of everything. It just talks to his friends about sharks on the computer all day, according to Jack. Well, pretty actually, yes. No, okay. So what I do, according to my son, is I talk to my friends and watch shark videos, which is actually pretty accurate. <laughs> that sounds like a, a, a pretty great job, to be honest. No, I can't complain at all. It's, it's amazing. Okay, Jade, how about you? Um, yeah, so I work for the Save Our Seas communication unit, I guess you can call it, um, and I try and make sure that like whatever information we're distilling from the foundation will resonate with our audience and that they'll understand it. We also try and make sure that the content we're uh, producing is interesting, fun. Um, we're really trying to make science fun. So yeah, I have a really cool job in that <laughs> I basically am paid to have fun all the time, <laughs> but also produce a lot of interesting content. <laughs> yeah, so, so Jade, Jade makes the videos that James watches. <laughs> yes. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and then Lauren, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, thanks. So um, I'm a sort of newer addition, I, go, I guess, to the Save Our Seas Foundation staff um, this time around. I'm a marine ecologist by background and training, but uh, for the foundation, I'm the science writer uh, with the communications unit. So I read a lot of scientific papers and turn it into newsworthy, readable pieces for the website, um, for the Save Our Seas magazine. I chat to project leaders and essentially tell their scientific stories uh, in in a way that isn't going to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. Awesome, thank you. Um, yeah, so that's who's on the podcast today, but of course there are lots of other people part of the Save Our Seas team who work really hard behind the scenes to make all of the content that you see online and also to produce all of the science and all the funding and things like that, and you can find about all of them on the Save Our Seas website. Um, but today, our job is to answer your questions about sharks. And I'm actually going to hand over the reins to Jade, who is going to ask our audience questions and pitch them to us. And we are going to try our hardest to answer them for you. So to dive into it, um, the first question that we got is actually from one of our... Uh, we get a few questions from him on Instagram, so I'm really happy that we uh, are able to answer one of them on the podcast. He is Young Animal Conservationist, is his uh, Instagram handle, and he wants to know, how do ampullae of Lorenzi work? And we're going to ask Lauren if she can please help us with this question. Sure, sure. Yeah, so... The Ampullae of Lorenzini, um, I guess the first thing you need to know is that sharks have this amazing ability to detect their prey using the electrical fields that are emitted by prey animals. Um, so the Ampullae of Lorenzini, for those of you who are listening in who, who haven't necessarily heard of them before, heard about them, um, are sensitive to electrical fields. And so they're, in essence, a shark's super-powered way of finding hidden or camouflaged prey. Um, and they act a little bit like shark semiconductors. So if you understand any of the physics behind that, they're, they're not quite as conductive as metals like copper um, or insulators like glass or ceramics, but they're what pick up on the natural electrical charge that is released by anything that is moving. So when, when your muscles move, it releases a natural electrical charge um, and it transports a signal to the shark's brain that says, ah, voltage, uh, an animal moved nearby. So even if a fish is hiding under the sand, 
uh, any of the cartilaginous fishes, so the sharks, rays, skates, or chimeras, will, will know that it's there if it moves. Um, I think to answer the specific question, though, is how do they work? First, I think we need to know where they are and, and what they look like on a shark. So they're these dark little pores. Um, if you look on a shark, you can usually see them quite prominently on the head. Uh, and they look a little bit like freckles all over on the skin of the skin surface of the shark. Um, and those pores are jelly-filled. They're filled with a conductor fluid. Um, and underneath those pores are little tubes that kind of lead down to what's, what's called the base, um, the sort of bulb of the tube. And at the base of the bulb is what's called a receptor cell. And the receptor cell has this little projection that sticks out into the conductor fluid. That little projection is called the kinocilium. Um, and that's where the magic happens. So a voltage is released. It, it kind of meets the shark at its skin surface. It's detected at the pore. The voltage travels down through the tube, through the conductor fluid. It reaches the receptor cell. And the kinocilium is what... Um, where the sort of chemistry happens. So calcium is released, it makes the cell membrane um, depolarized, and that allows a little transmitter to emit something that can activate the nerve synapse. So nerve synapses are what send signals to our brain. You put your hand down on a hot plate, on an oven, or on a stovetop, um, your brain receives a signal to say, move your hand, that's pain. In the same way, this is what happens. The transmitter translates that to the nerve synapse, sends a signal to the shark's brain. The result of that little reaction is potassium that repolarizes the cell membrane, so everything kind of resets and goes back to normal. So that's sort of the pathway that happens and results in a shark knowing that um, there's, a, there's a prey item nearby. Shark superpowers. Yeah, no, that's incredible. It's, it's very, very cool. You'll look twice at shark freckles, I guess. Uh, you'll, you'll look at them differently now. Yeah. My freckles aren't quite so useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The next question is from James, and it's from Save Our Seas' very own Drifting Dandy. Um, she would like to know, how do baby sharks get out of their egg cases? Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Thank you. Um, I guess first off to say is, yeah, so the sharks reproduce in, in lots of sort of different ways. And one of those ways is, is, is they lay eggs. Um, some of those sort of uh, eggs hatch inside them before they even lay them. So it's sort of a bit of a hybrid of egg laying and live birth. Some actually have a placenta and live birth like us, like uh, uh, mammals do. Um, but a, a lot of sharks just straight up lay eggs on the reef in the kelp, often with tendrils to sort of secure them down make sure they don't get washed away and stuff and then that egg is filled with yolk much like a, a chicken egg or something else and that grows up um, into a miniature version of the adult that at some point has to get out um, and the way they get out is is pretty straightforward actually they um, it's probably a combination of, of chewing and pushing really they probably out they get to a size where they're very curled up inside you might see these pictures of egg cases lit up uh, and you can see the developed shark egg sort of curled up inside, sorry, shark embryo inside the egg. If you ever see them washed up on a beach, uh, it's the, what we call mermaid's purses, but they're these little leathery cases. Well, I say little, some of them, as Isla can probably tell you, are actually really quite massive from some of the larger uh, arrays of skates and things. But if you find one of those on the beach, have, have a good look at it because it'll usually be open at one end. There's, there's uh, an opening where the shark has pushed its way out 
probably with a bit of biting involved and sort of just wriggle its way out. But if you find one of these uh, that's actually still closed at the end but has a hole somewhere else, this is really interesting because that means that egg probably didn't hatch but was actually uh, eaten by something. There's actually all different kinds of things that eat shark eggs. Um, and one of the most surprising is snails. <laughs> so you actually get these whelks and things that will you know, crawl around on the, on the seafloor and find this massively nutrient-rich shark egg and sort of drill in and suck it up through a straw kind of thing. Nice. <laughs> egg yolk milkshake. <laughs> yeah, it is shark egg milkshake, exactly. Um, uh, or snail hangover cure, I'm not sure. <laughs> Just, just as a quick, um, we talked about like the kind of like egg yolk milkshake, <laughs> if you like. Sometimes you can find egg cases on the beach that still have either the undeveloped embryo or a failed egg inside of it. And they absolutely stink. They are really, really, really smelly. So I can't, I imagine that's very attractive to a snail, not so much to a human. Um, and also a cool little Baskin shark fact that can go along with the sort of egg case theme. So Baskin sharks are over viviparous, which means that the egg hatches inside the mother. But there is a theory on how the baby Baskin sharks break out of the egg uh, uh, inside inside the womb. And they basically, when Baskin sharks are born, no one's ever seen a Baskin shark give birth, but we know that the juveniles have little pointy noses. And we think that one of the functions may be of the pointy nose is to help it get out of the egg. So in False Bay, our, um, the, the cat sharks that we have here, or our shy sharks, they actually, they, when, the, when they hatch out of the, the egg cases, their noses are actually really, really rough. And they use the, their noses almost like sandpaper and they wiggle up and down. It almost like helps them to like break out of the top of the, the egg case, which is quite cool. I also yet to be confirmed in a study, but um, one of the girls, I bumped into a shark researcher who's studying this, and they think that they also release some type of enzyme, which helps break down the egg case as well. So the friction, the sand, paper, nose effect, and this enzyme helps them get out of the egg case. It's a little easier. That's really interesting, yeah. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, because when you pick them up on the beach, like any anyone who finds them on the beach, like pick them up, have a good feel of them. They are really tough and very, you know, quite thick and leathery. So if you imagine like a like a little baby shark trying to fight its way out of that, you know, it's it, it's got to have a couple of things to to give it a hand. In its arsenal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, really cool. Okay, so the next question is uh, one that we actually are asked quite often. Um, so it seems to be one that people are very curious about is whether a shark is a fish or a mammal. And Isla, I'm going to ask you to answer this one, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so again, this is a, this is a good question. Um, the short answer is sharks are fish. Um, but I think it's quite easy to see why some people might mistake them for mammals. So I'll just explain the difference between a fish and a mammal. So basically, in a very basic sense, mammals generally uh, tend to use air to breathe. They also have mammary glands, which is where the name comes from, um, because they nourish their young with milk produced from those glands. Um, whereas sharks or fish, rather, fish mainly live underwater. They don't need air to breathe because they have gills 
Um, they're generally cold-blooded, mammals are warm-blooded um, and lack those mammary glands as well. So they've got lots of different ways of nourishing their young. And um, so that's kind of like the main differences, but I can tell where it starts to get confused um, because <laughs> there are some mammals that, so one of the things that, is that a, lot, a lot of people say to distinguish mammals is that they give birth to live young. Whereas we know that some species of shark also give birth to live young. We also know that some mammals lay eggs, one of them being the platypus. So it gets a little bit confused there. Um, and then to go a little bit further in terms of what kind of fish uh, a shark actually is. So just to go even further into, into what kind of fish uh, sharks are, you can actually split them into two groups. So two big, very big groups that contain a lot of different uh, types of fish. But in general, you have one group, which are called the bony fishes, which have uh, a, a bony skeleton. And then sharks are part of the cartilaginous fishes or the chondrichthians, um, which don't actually have uh, don't actually have bones. They have they have a cartilaginous skeleton. So I like to say if you take your finger and roll around the tip of your nose or if you feel the top of your ear, that's cartilage. And that's what sharks are made out of. And they share that group. Uh, so that's the group that has sharks, rays, skates and chimeras in them. So they are cartilaginous fishes. Um, but to make matters even more confusing, we have a shark called a whale shark, which I imagine some people might think is a marine mammal. And also because they don't they, they look very, uh, I don't know, quite thick and blubbery as well. It can be it can be confused sometimes. But sharks are fish. Yes, and that's interesting. It is actually, we have, if you'd like to find out more about this particular piece um, and go more in depth, we actually have a piece on whether sharks are a mammal or a fish on the World of Sharks website, which you can just Google World of Sharks and World of Sharks. Save our seas should come up with the answer to that question. We can link to that in the show notes as well. So our next question is a really interesting one because I think for most people, if you ask them to describe uh, or name four species of sharks, they'll go hammerhead shark, great whites, tiger shark, and maybe like a bull shark or a raggedy shark, maybe a whale shark. It's very limited. So when you actually tell them the number of sharks that exist in our oceans, their minds are blown. So, Lauren, if you could please share with us how many shark species there are. I find this one an, an interesting one to answer too because it's a number that keeps changing, which, which is mind-blowing to me given sort of the size and scale of, of these animals in our oceans, you know, that, that we're still finding and describing and, and re-describing them. But um, so the answer used to be around or over 500, but, but since the publication of the new revised edition of Sharks of the World, which is kind of considered one of the seminal shark guides, um, 536 is, is the number of shark species that I've seen recorded there. But that number rises to over 1,200 species if you're actually looking at what Isla mentioned, the, the group of, fish, of um, sharks, rays, gates and chimeras, the cartilaginous fishes. So if you look at all chondrichthians, the number's in the thousands, which is unbelievable. Um, and so a couple of years ago, just interestingly, on that point of 536 species, I, I wrote an article um, on shark taxonomy, which is the science of naming things, really, with uh, Dr. Dave Ebert, uh, who is one of the world's sort of foremost shark taxonomists. Um, and, and he's discovered 
over 40 species of sharks in his lifetime and career on his own. And what he said to me was really striking, and it's, it's almost more important to me than the total number of sharks. And he said that um, over 240 of those shark species have been described in the last 15 years alone, which is amazing when you think of the next thing that came to mind, which is, um, you know, we think of some of the biggest animals in our oceans, uh, some of the biggest rays, the manta rays. Um, Dr. Andrea Marshall discovered a whole new species of manta ray only in 2008. You know, before that, we had thought that the smaller coastal reef mantas and what we now know as the bigger oceanic mantas were considered single species, um, and now we know that they're separate. So. Um, I think it's an answer that keeps changing. Um, in South Africa, where I live and work, our total count of sharks has just been revised and changed at the end of last year as well. So um, it just goes to show that the shark taxonomy is a constant voyage of revision and discovery, and we are discovering and naming and renaming and rediscovering and redescribing sharks all the time. Yeah. That's amazing. How many species do you think Davey Book can list off the top of his head? How close can he get to the... A lot more than any of us. <laughs> and probably more unusual ones. I think that's the, that's the other interesting thing is, is sharks that we don't think of as sharks. You know, I, I always think of like a Wobbegong shark or Jade, you mentioned a, a, a shy shark. These kind of odd looking angel sharks. They, they really are every form and function that you can think of. Okay, so moving on from shark biology and the more science-weighted uh, questions to shark conservation. James, I'm going to ask you this one because I think you probably spend more time free diving with sharks than any of well, the rest of us are a close second. Um, is it safe to free dive with whale sharks? Um, and may I ask how to free dive with whale sharks safely? Um, and this was a question that we received on our Instagram call for questions from Alyssa Mohani. Sure, yeah, no, thanks for this question. I think it's a, a good and actually really important question because it sort of highlights a couple of things. I think sort of the short answer is, is yes, it, it, it is safe to dive with whale sharks, but you have to do it in the right way. Um, so, you know, whale sharks, these big, massive, charismatic sharks um, that we often think of as gentle giants, and they aggregate in sort of various different points around the world. So they're sort of, uh, it's, it's actually a shark that you can quite reliably find aggregations to give the opportunity of encounters. And, you know, they are, they are very placid. They pretty much you know, ignore people and go about their business, which is largely eating lots of plankton. Right, great opportunities for getting in and having these magical encounters. Um, but you just have to make sure you do it the right way. And a lot of that is about um, making sure you, if you find somewhere where you can do this, that you choose sort of a reputable operator. Most operators um, you know, should have some form of code of conduct, which sort of uh, dictates how, how they and other people in the area uh, you know, should interact with those animals. Basically, what you're aiming to do is to not sort of interrupt the natural behavior of that animal while having your encounter. Um, so, you know, don't get in its pathway, sort of stay at least three to four meters uh, away from it, depending where you are. Um, uh, you know, stay calm in the water, swim slowly, you know, don't charge it or anything. If you have cameras, don't use the flash. So you're, you're just really looking to sort of um, observe the animal passively and, you know, then free diving with that, you know, should hopefully be a very positive experience. Um, 
And at the same time, you know, through eco and reputable ecotourism, operators provides uh, you know, hopefully sustainable livelihoods for the people um, you know, living in the area. And these might vary depending on place. If you if you look up online, you know, most places will have a code of conduct, um, and it will vary between places depending on the local circumstances. So yeah, I think it is given given the right circumstances a, a very positive thing to do um, and just to do a bit of research and make sure that whoever you're planning to go out with to have these free diving encounters is doing it in the right way for the animals mm. and they're just you're actually seeing the animals in their natural environment um, the, I know that there are instances where they've almost uh, I want to say trained but the, the whale sharks aren't behaving naturally anymore because they're being provisioned so their, their, their whole behavior and where, the, where, where you're finding them now, um, that's not necessarily how it would be um, in the natural environment. Definitely. There are some instances which have actually developed from sort of local circumstances where, you know, whale sharks, you know, there's, we mostly think of them eating plankton, but they also eat small fish and things. And there's actually some amazing footage of them even plowing into bait balls. But something they do in some locations is, um, you know, they've been attracted to like fishing nets and things because it has a lot of fish and, you know, have a go at sucking on those um, to, to get the fish out through the nets and stuff. And then that's in some places developed into a tourism opportunity. Um, but those kind of circumstances obviously might bring people into much closer proximity and again, has to be, uh, you know, managed very, very carefully. Um, but uh, yeah, if you can find uh, an operator to experience them in one of these sort of natural aggregations uh, in, 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 a, in a passive way, it, yeah, it'll be a life-changing, mind-blowing experience. Okay, the next one is, it's, it's, it's a very specific question, but I think it's a topic that uh, we're asked about quite often. Um, so I'm really excited for us to dive a little bit deeper into this one, and I'm going to ask Lauren if she could please um, answer this one. Um, Alison Natchez would like to know, she says, there are lots of shark tours in Florida that use bait boxes to lure in sharks. Is this harmful? Mm. Yeah, so a complex question. And I mean, so I, I myself have used um, sort of baited cameras to do underwater research um, in a sort of randomized sampling uh, strategy. But I have to say before I answer this, I'm obviously not based in the United States and, and I haven't done any research myself pertaining to shark diving and, and the shark diving industry, but I can distill some of the science because there is a lot of research that has gone into looking at this kind of question. And, and I think in the end, the answer is that you're going to have to formulate your own opinion based on sort of the available research and, and then also your innate sense of uh, what trade-offs are valuable and and which you find acceptable um, when it comes to this question. So there's a lot of research looking at the impact of baited shark dives, but it comes from different sites all around the world. And there's evidence that points to both sort of negligible impacts all the way through to negative impacts um, on when we're talking about harm um, on shark behavior. So are sharks being conditioned? Um, or shark community interactions, so is there competition between sharks, um, is the structure of the shark community changing, are there different shark species moving in and out. Um, and I think then obviously from that we tend to infer something about human safety, which is the other part of, of this question. Um, 
There is research that uh, comes from South Australia that shows that baited diving increased the number of sharks um, and also the duration um, of time that they stayed in a localized area over a long period of time. Um, at the same time, there's also research from South Africa that showed that white sharks showed a sort of waning interest uh, in tourist boats over time. However, those researchers from South Africa did say that um, you kind of need to zoom out and look at this question, not just from the local site, but at the scale of the country, because um, they found that conditioning could happen of shark behavior if the permitted conditions were con contravened. So South Africa limits feeding of sharks. And so they said, you know, it, it depends on whether there's significant and predictable food offered to sharks. And, and if there is, that can change shark behavior. But, but where there isn't, they found that white sharks sort of lost interest uh, in tourist boats over time. Um, there's also some research that came from French Polynesia where sickle fin lemon sharks um, are actually given a food reward um, at the end of the, uh, during dives and, and that increased aggression between uh, sharks because there's, there's limited food available and so they were competing in the end for that food reward. Uh, so I think Overall, uh, much of the research is, is sort of pointing to the idea that the degree to which uh, baiting will impact shark behavior or potentially cause harm um, is going to depend on the species in question, on the sort of scale and predictability of, of the, of the feed, food reward at the site. Um, is there feeding of sharks? How often? For how long? Is it predictably at the same site every day over time? And then I think, of course, and I always think of this from a management perspective, that it depends on the procedures that are in place in the country. So for Florida, I'm, I'm not aware, but I think it's something that you would need to look into to formulate your own opinion. Um, what is the number of permitted operators? Uh, what is the enforcement like of the baiting regulations? Um, and what is the timing and length of a diving season? You know, is it happening year round? Is it happening in the same place year round? Um, and then I guess, uh, because I'm, I'm more of an ecologist, I always kind of zoom out and, and tend to think about also taking into account um, questions about baiting in context of the harm to the marine environment as, as a whole. So um, here you have to consider that there are so many inputs nowadays into the marine environment. Uh, you can think of fish innards that are discarded by fishermen as they're coming in and out of port every day. There's wasteful outflows, there's industrial runoff, when I think of Florida, I often think particularly of industrial runoff um, from land that causes toxic algal, algal blooms. There's a lot going into the marine system. So you do have to think, is the quantity um, of bait being used in a diving operation, what is the level of harm to the entire system relative to all the other inputs that are going on uh, in that place? Um, and from there, really, it is down to sort of making up your own mind then on the trade-offs with what the economic output might be. Um, the research, as I say, there's enough of it out there, but, but it's really going to depend on what species, where you are, how good the enforcement and conditions are, um, and, and sort of what the scale of the food reward, if there is one, uh, is. So there you go. I hope that kind of gives you a place from which to start making a, a more informed um, opinion. I mean, I, when we were doing the marine conservation photography grant, one of um, 
the locations that that we went to, we did go on a, a baited shark dive off the coast of, of Florida. So just from experience, like I can say that I was very impressed with how well it was managed. Um, you know, the dive instructor or the guide leading the dive made sure that we all stayed to a certain distance, that everyone um, was above the bait box. They weren't also just like chumming the water, like going crazy, throwing bait out. Um, it was, yeah, they were very, um, it was very considered and very monitored. And throughout that entire dive, we only had one shark come and swim around to like it was just curious wanted to have a look at what was going on swam around for about like 10 minutes and then it went off on its way so um i, I think it also depends very much on like you said the dive um, operators that you go with but you know having listened to what you said now my experience with that uh, it was very positive because we went you know we needed to we went with the intention of being able to take a photo of the sharks in that area and there's no way that you can just hop into the ocean and expect to see that shark that specific species to come swimming past you so for instances like that um to not to be guaranteed because it's never guaranteed but if you want to like you know increase the chances of seeing the various species it does help with that stuff and also for research purposes like you were saying with the brass um, to get an idea of the, the wildlife in the area, specifically sharks. Um, it is almost necessary, yeah. It links really well as well to what James was saying about tourism and about, you know, free diving with whale sharks too. Like the same principles apply. So just do your research. Don't just go with any person or any, you know, operator. Make sure that you have a look and see what their practices are. Make sure that they're following a code of conduct. If they're if they're baiting or if they're using bait or, or you know, make sure that they're doing that in a way where they're monitoring how they're doing it. Um, yeah, the same principles apply. And we also talk about this on episode two of The Whole Tooth all that, you know, all that time ago. Um, with Rich and Nikki who do you know work in the the shark tourism industry and they talk at length about those you know those 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 two things those and what factors to consider when you are looking at you know going out with somebody um, but yeah just being a bit just being very conscious of of the operator that you're going to go out with and, and what practices they do but yeah that was a, a really a really really thorough answer Lauren that was great the next question, I quite like this one because um, conservation optimism. Uh, Hazel Woodcat would like to know if we have any positive news to share. So, yeah, I'm going to just open this up for everyone because I'm sure that we all have um, positive stories to share. Well, I mean, I'm going to say I find this really exciting because it's not often that people ask I, I think we kind of in a head, headset a little bit sometimes with conservation where you want people to ask what good is happening because it often feels as though um it's always sort of what can we do better and and, and why is this failing and, and there's so much there is reason to hope and uh, one of them for me is i i um i know some researchers and a lot of scientists here in South Africa have been working on a specific shark conservation plan that, that for the first time looks at, at where um, 
where sharks are finding essential, well, using essential habitats, like what are the critical areas for sharks along our coastline, and are using that information in a really powerful way to come up with something that is specifically to put sharks onto our sort of marine protected area map and agenda. So, I mean, we have in South Africa really good news about an expanded marine protected area network, which, which happened um, a few years ago in 2019. Um, but in order to meet the next targets, um, they're really putting, pushing sharks forward as saying, you know, they weren't included in a very considered way before. And what's lovely to me is, is just how willing and strong the community was of researchers to come forward and, and, and just give their data through to, to put this kind of powerful plan together that can go through to government and, and to policymakers to say, this is where you need to be looking to protect our sharks and rays. Um, and to see that come together so cohesively and so quickly, uh, because the work is done, the researchers have been doing that kind of work for years, it's, it, it's a heartening thing, I think, to say to people, scientists are working very, very hard um, on, on getting this stuff through, you know, and there's a point to it, and, and something does come out of it. And then on a more global scale, I mean, it's not the same thing, but like uh, IUC and Shark Specialist Group recently launched ISRAs, which also looks at important shark and ray areas, and they're also going to be mapping out all of these important shark and ray areas that we need to look at protecting to to yeah, ensure biodiversity, to ensure that like the really critically endangered species are also they've got these safe spaces. Yeah, I think a great thing about that as well in 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 what's happening in, in NSA and by extension sort of more broadly with the important shark and ray areas is it is very much a collaborative effort between people sort of globally to try and identify these critical habitats but it also ties into you know a lot of countries have committed to protecting sort of 30 percent of their oceans by 3030. 3030? That's a very long time away. 2030. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely a lot more urgency than that. Um, I like how I nodded along with that as well. I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I like the, I say that? Yeah. Um, so by 2030, and you know, there's a, a lot of motivation now to try and get sort of the, the value of, of, of important areas of sharks to be considered in these planning processes. Um, so that a lot of this effort, when there is motivation to protect areas that sharks get considered in that process, which then also spills over to other species and habitats. You know, if you have somewhere that protects sharks very well because of sharks' position in an ecosystem and in a food web, you're probably going to end up protecting a lot of that habitat or ecosystem alongside of that. Um, and yes, yeah, so seeing that momentum and collaborative momentum, I think, uh, uh, is really encouraging. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and I mean, we're having conversations now that we're not even were not even on the table like 10 years ago when I started university it's it's really nice to actually see these things get put through and and just there is something as well that I wanted to bring up that I'm hoping to do a full episode on in the future um because it is a little bit more complex so it is positive in a way but there's also not so positive sides to it too um but it is a great step in the, the right direction. And that is um, this week, the World Trade Organization announced their agreement on fisheries subsidies, um, which has taken 20 years um, to negotiate, uh, just to put that in perspective. So you've got 
you know, around 164 member states, I think it is, trying to all agree on the same thing to do with fisheries, which is never going to be easy. Um, and there has been, I would just want to put it out there, there has been mixed reviews to the agreement. There's a lot of people saying it's it's still not strong enough, but the fact that they have actually put an agreement down and, and there are going to be some measures in place to start to curb some of these fishery subsidies is definitely a step in the, the right direction. Um, so, you know, that's something that is that is positive on a on a global scale is that we are, you know, having that discussion um, and that those member states are agreeing. I mean, there's obviously there's obviously more to go. Um, but what they're trying to target are subsidies that um, where the, the fishery that's being subsidised is found to be taking part in illegal, unreported or unregulated activities or is fishing on an overfished stock. So that's where they're at at the moment. Um, and there is there is now, um, I think one of the actions is to in future then discuss the sort of harmful subsidies and the capacity enhancing subsidies as well in the future. So it's sort of like a a springboard onto the onto the next thing. So I think that's something that springs to mind is something that happened this week actually as we're as we're recording. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. And it makes me think about in terms of international agreements, uh, there's increasing momentum for sharks on CITES as well. And uh, I don't want to go into too much detail on CITES. Uh, Sarah Fowler has previously sort of explained that very well on our podcast on a previous episode, but very briefly if you're signed up to CITES and the species gets listed on CITES, then you cannot trade that species internationally without proving uh, very firmly that uh, however you're exploiting it is done sustainably, which obviously, if a species has got to a point to be listed on CITES, is usually very hard to do. Um, uh, and traditionally, there haven't been many shark species listed on CITES, but there is increasing momentum for it. Uh, the most recent uh, listing of Mako shark uh, appears to have been particularly impactful because um, technically catching a shark on the high seas and then importing it, uh, then bringing it ashore counts as importing it. So you can't catch it on the high seas and bring it home if it's on CITES uh, without showing it's sustainable, which in the case of Mako's in the Atlantic is most likely it isn't. Um, and then so this has indirectly led to sort of retention bans being adopted uh, along with a, a hell of a lot of uh, hard work from, from NGOs uh, campaigning tirelessly. Um, uh, but, you know, Europe's been one of the biggest fishers of pelagic sharks and things like makos, and for them to not allow retention of these species, uh, you know, is, is a step forward or a step in the right direction. And then, you know, we're very much hoping there's going to be a lot of increased momentum for further listings, you know, at future CITES meetings. We received a very interesting question from Blue Whale Zero Nine on Instagram. They wanted to know what, in terms of careers now, um, what opportunities are there for high school students who would like to get involved in marine conservation or shark science? Yeah, I think Isla, if you, I think you have. Yeah, I'm happy for you to take the lead on this one. Yeah, I can I can start and then and James and Lauren can can jump in. Um but I think these are really really good questions because it's it's a really difficult 
uh, time as a teenager to try and figure out how you can, you know, how you can get involved or how you can start get a foot on the ladder um, into shark science and conservation. Um, but there's a couple of things that I think can really help. So thinking from a, first of all, addressing the kind of like, how can a teen get into shark science question? Um, because science is such a huge, especially shark science is such a huge, broad field. There's lots of different species that you can study. There's lots of different aspects that you can study within shark science. And so something that you can do is to try and figure out sort of what areas specifically you are interested in. So um, it's, it's perfectly fine to be just interested in shark science in general, but it's often a good idea to have a general idea of kind of where you want to go. And you can have a couple of different areas in your head if you want. Um, and we have, the, we have the, the, the really great tools that are social media and YouTube at our fingertips. And there's lots and lots of videos um, and accounts and podcasts, just like this one, that interview lots of different shark scientists um, and talk about their careers and how they got into things and what areas that they study. And that can help you really figure out where it is that you might like to go, where, what is your niche, where do you want to fit into um, and also it can just help you to get an idea of what it is actually like, uh, being a science and being a science, being a scientist <laughs> and, and what different careers are out there as well, because there's not just research, there's all different kinds of careers to do with science as well. Um, so just exploring, this is the perfect time for you to explore and figure out what you want to do. Um, also from a very practical standpoint, if you want to go into some form of shark or marine science, um, you do need to think about what subjects you want to study in school. Um, so this isn't the be all or end all. Um, you can always change these at a later stage or do you know additional courses or things like that. So don't panic if you're not doing exactly the right courses. Um, but generally some form of science is a good uh, foundation to have um, if you are going to go on and go down the kind of scientific routes of biology, chemistry, uh, physics. Uh, math, any of the STEM subjects uh, are, are good to have. Um, and then in terms of this one kind of covers both bases, really, which is conservation and science, um, is just to kind of get stuck in wherever you can. So if you're fortunate enough to live by the seaside, um, you can go and do beach cleans or you can take part um, uh, take part in different uh, marine conservation initiatives. That's all good experience to go on your CV. Um, and also there's tons and tons of citizen science schemes out there where you don't even have to be by the seaside to do them. So one great example is Penguin Watch. Um, so we had uh, Dr. Tom Hart on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about his research with penguins in Antarctica. And all of their citizen science is online. You don't have to be a scientist to take part. You literally just hop on the website and click on that um, and you can get involved. And being a citizen science is actually practical research experience that you're getting that you can put on your CV and say, I was part of this, you know, this big research scheme. Um, and I learned new skills through this as well. There's also the great egg case hunt that's experience in ID identification, shark identification. Um, there's lots and lots of things that you can do. And lastly, if you if you do like advice, if you want advice or you want to chat to anybody or you maybe want to get some work experience in a lab, um, just use Google, find people who are in the field that you would like to be in and just drop them an email. Most researchers and most scientists and marine conservationists are all too happy 
to share their knowledge, share their experience and talk to you and help you out, please don't be shy. We're really, really friendly, most of us. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to reach out and get in touch. Um, but yeah, James and Lauren, I don't know if you have any other things you want to add to that. Uh, yeah, it, I was going to say also don't be afraid to follow up. If you don't get a reply straight away, um, you know, they could be in the field, they could be doing something else. So um, you know, don't be afraid to you know follow up after uh, however long to make sure uh, to check if they got your email. And just wanted to echo what you said, Isla, about you know even if sharks your goal or whatever don't worry about whatever experience you get being in a in a different field of, of science or, or conservation whether it's terrestrial or marine because whatever you end up doing you know will, will um, be helpful or whatever you're doing now will be helpful for what you do later you'll learn transferable skills um, and yeah it's probably most effective to sort of try and look at a, a speciality and then how do you apply that to sharks um, and, and then you'll also have you know, broader options along the way as well. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, I think um, the answer for me is anything and everything counts, uh, and enthusiasm counts the most. So I grew up inland, um, never had access to sort of aquarium-based programs, which, you know, you could look up if you do have that as an option. They do sometimes, uh, I know some, in some parts of the world, run high school programs uh, for learners like that. But if you grow up inland and you don't have access, anything and everything counts. And as James said, it's transferable skills, but it also shows a level of enthusiasm. Just sort of soaking up everything, I think, puts you in a headspace that, that motivates you to get to that point. I think I've also supervised a lot of students who didn't come from either an ocean um, home, you know, so a site next to the coast where they lived, or they didn't have even a marine background, you know, they kind of got into marine science a little bit later, having started off in a completely different branch of science and found their way into, into marine science um, and then into shark science. And it's sort of never been a stumbling point or, or a, a hindrance. In, in fact, I think it's kind of shown a level of commitment that really makes, as you said, Isla, this friendly group of shark scientists who are mo more than happy to respond to you very happy to to kind of help get you sort of on a pathway to, to um, being a shark scientist yourself. I think all of us have sort of found our various ways of getting into this. So we know what it's like, you know, we, we understand that passion and that interest and that curiosity. And, and so we know what that little pathway looks like and how it can sometimes be a bit of a struggle. Um, and so, yeah, if you just have that enthusiasm, it shines through. We do have one final listener question to get to at the end, but just now I was going to ask um, if you can tell us uh, what is coming up for the Save Our Seas Foundation, Jaden James. So uh, yeah, the, the the I'm kind of going to do it in a chronological. I think that would make the most sense. The next thing that I can think of is um, we're going to. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with our storytelling grants. It's like traditionally or not traditionally previously what we've done is we focused on photography as a conservation storytelling tool to um, raise awareness about certain issues to connect people with certain animals and environments and all the rest um, but we are actually going to be opening it up 
to outside of photography. Um, I'm not going to say uh, what we're going to be opening it, opening it up to just yet. Um, but yeah, we're very excited to be branching out um, and giving storytellers with a different skill set the opportunity. The beauty of the Ocean Storytelling Grant is we've got that mentorship element to it where they get mentored um, and help give them platform to share their stories. Uh, but it, it's always so great seeing this new talent that comes through uh, with these grants as well. So Yeah, no, we're very excited to share news shortly and hopefully actually be very soon after this episode comes out for a, a new category. It's again for it's for emerging people in this discipline. So when you're really starting out and we've got a couple of sort of you know very exciting you know, people that we are very pleased will be joining the, the team for this particular grant category that we hope to share with you very, very soon. Um, and then I guess keeping with the theme of storytelling, uh, we are very excited, I'm not sure if anyone will have seen this on our social media, um, but we have partnered with Wildscreen, so we are going to be, uh, well we are sponsoring the impact category um, of Wildscreen, uh, so there will be a Panda Award for this impact category, which Sevasis will be sponsoring, and that will be looking at the documentaries that um, have the greatest impact and like when they say impact is like um, measuring like a change in human behavior or not necessarily measuring a change in human behavior but inspiring a change in uh, human behavior so we're very excited not only to be partnering with Wildscreen but to also attend Wildscreen and to meet other filmmakers out there other people in the industry yeah we're looking forward to that one yeah, no, it's very exciting. Yeah, and like Wildscreen has its roots in filmmaking and conservation. I think WWF has been part of it since the beginning, and so it's sort of really nice to sort of develop this partnership where we can sort of try and bring you know science and conservation through the storytelling um, um, with Wildscreen. So yeah, no, we're very happy about that. And if you're going to Wildscreen, give us a shout because uh, we'll be there. And Jade, I don't know. There's. Uh, something called super sharks. I don't know if you want to mention something about them. Yes, we're very excited about this. So we launched um, in World Oceans Day. It's been, it's been two years in the making. So World Oceans Day 2020, uh, we launched this idea of super sharks, which uh, kind of looked at uh, these sharks with uh, their evolutionary adaptations were their superpowers. So for example, the manta was intelligence, the saw uh, fish used his saw as like a weapon. Uh, white shark or great white, as we called her, she used her super strength. That was her superpower. Um, Thrasher used the tail. Anyway, I can go on. I'm so excited about this. Um, but yeah, we launched it with just 12 characters. And then we also um, made little trump cards. Well, not little trump cards. We had a half card deck with these 12 characters. Um, yeah, where you could find out more about the sharks, you could look at how deep they dived, and we had them all like rated accurately, speed, how deep they dived, size. So you could learn a lot while you were playing this card game. That was the idea. And we, uh, yeah, we finalized the design. They're off to the printer, and very soon we should have all 24 characters and a full deck of cards to distribute. Uh, to share with the world, um, so we're very excited about that. Yeah, and then how about and then I guess you know the the last thing I'd like to mention, which is the the biggest event 
in the shark calendar for this year. Uh, it only happens once every four years. Is, is the Sharks uh, International Conference in, in Valencia. Uh, Jay, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, well, um, Save Our Seas will be sponsoring that as well. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think we're just, uh, I think after two years of not, of a lot of the researchers not being able to attend a lot of conferences, because normally we have like our regional conferences which take place. Um, as James mentioned, the last one that took place was four years ago. We haven't seen a lot of our friends. We've missed everyone. So we're looking forward to um, attending this event. It will be at the Oceanographic um, Aquarium in Valencia in Spain, which is, I mean, it's like, it's a very impressive venue. I'm just going to say that it's, it's like a, a, a hybrid between a spaceship and an aquarium, but then also in an amazing setting. But we are going to have some really interesting talks. We're going to uh, be looking at science communication, which obviously is something that we are very, very passionate about here at Save Our Seas Foundation. There will obviously be different researchers presenting their research, so I can't wait to see what has happened in the last four years um, and to, you know, see a lot of like, I'm going to refer to them as the greats, but um, that I'm fangled with shark research sometimes, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what some what some researchers uh, present on. But the another thing that we're doing, um, I'm very very excited about this. Um, we are doing a public awareness event in the lead up to uh, Sharks International. So we really we we don't necessarily want this event to happen, and the people of Valencia know nothing about it. So we are. The venue is amazing. We're going to uh, have um, a daytime event uh, and a nighttime event uh, at the University of Valencia Botanical Gardens. So our daytime event will be like public outreach. So that'll be very family friendly. The kids, well, families can attend um, and we'll have different activities for the children. And then we're going to get various marine organizations from Valencia and Spain to come and present like just the work that they're doing and whether it's like teaching kids about angel sharks, uh, stingrays, uh, ocean, uh, the oceanographic team will be there doing outreach, um, just like general marine outreach, Save Our Seas will be there as well. And then that evening we are also going to be doing like a public talks evening where we're going to be getting different uh, shark researchers uh, uh, dive operators, photographers, uh, basically a whole bunch of salty sea dogs to come and tell their, their salty tales to the audience. So um, they'll have like 10 minute slots where they can either share photos or just talk about their experience. But kind of we want to um, really get this whole shark ocean excitement going with the public in the lead up to the event. Yeah. Super, super exciting. And that's a really important aspect as well, because a lot of these conferences kind of stay very much within the academic circle. So it's really important to sort of bring them into the public space and involve people in them as well. Um, so, yeah, really exciting. Lots and lots of stuff coming up. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that, listeners. Um, and obviously the whole team uh, will be doing some episodes as well um, from both events hopefully and um, so you'll be able to hear that too um, but yeah keep an eye out for everything that's going on lots going on super exciting um, but we are going to bring our ask us anything to a close with a final question from a listener 
which we are going to ask to everyone because it's just, it's a good closing question. Uh, so thank you very much, Elise the Mermaid, for giving us our perfect ending question. Um, and that is, and I'm sorry to ask this of everyone because I know it's like picking your favourite child, um, but it is, what is your favourite elasmobranch? <laughs> James and I always pick the same ones. <laughs> he always steals mine. <laughs> Do you want to go first then, Jade? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to diversify um, from the last one, so you can go first. Well, this is this this is slightly different from which you'd like to be or have a beer with. It's like which is your actual favourite? And well, my favourite has uh, it's it's a pretty uh, mind blowing shark. Really, it's got an awesome name and is like it's come from a melting pot of B-movie pop culture. Um, that's the Velvet Belly Lantern Shark. Uh, so this shark, uh, well, it's a shark in the first place, which makes it sort of, you know, um, undeniably awesome. But then it also pretty much has lightsabers and an invisibility cloak. Um, this shark, uh, it's basically able to produce its own light. Um, it, it's got sort of bio, it's got photophores, which are these cells that sort of um, help it bioluminesce. And uh, it uses these to light up spines on its back, um, which then glow, which is pretty impressive. I should have mentioned maybe that this shark lives very, very deep in the water, so it's very dark. Um, uh, and so suddenly these lightsabers might light up. And the idea, at least, is that these deter predators. You know, you can try and eat me, but it might not be a very pleasant experience. Um, but then these photophores also help give it what is thought to be some kind of invisibility cloak where, you know, hardly any light makes it down there, but there is still some. Uh, and these photophores along its belly sort of light up a little bit. And the idea is that that helps it blend in with the ambient light uh, coming down from the surface, um, which is to whether, you know, make it avoid predators or make it break up its silhouette so prey don't see it coming. We're not quite sure, but... That's pretty amazing. And it's also absolutely tiny. It's like a tiny shark with all this crazy cool stuff living in the bottom of the oceans um, with an awesome name. So yeah, Velvet Belly Lantern Shark. Good choice. Good choice. That is a cool one. Jade, do you have the same one then? <laughs> no, that is very clearly James's favourite shark. <laughs> Not a Velvet Belly Lantern Shark. Wouldn't touch that in the box. <laughs> no, uh, my favourite is the Cookie Cutter Shark. Um, <laughs> And purely because, like, you hear the name and you think, oh, cute, sweet, because it also is, like, it's a relatively small shark as well. Um, but then you see its teeth, and then you find out that it, like, it gets its name because, like, it literally, like, the way it bites its prey and, like, will, like, take flesh out of them, it kind of looks like someone's taken to this animal with a cookie cutter. Um... But my favorite, favorite part about the cookie cutter shark is that they have been known to completely um, render submarines useless underwater because they'll go and they'll either eat on the, the rubber sealant or like the cabling. So these submarines just basically stop dead in their tracks because this little shark has like decided that he's going to go have a tasty snack on something that it doesn't actually eat but um it's like the last thing that you would expect to stop a submarine is this uh shark named a cookie cutter shark so yeah i think they're pretty cool they're pretty badass yeah that that's that's pretty gnarly because they're not very big either so to take on something like a submarine is quite <laughs> impressive all right 
Lauren, how about you? What's your favourite Lesbo Brank? Oh gosh, this is so hard. Um, but I, I'm not as impressive as James and Jade in, in the competition here. I'm, I'm sentimental and I'm a mom, so mine is all about nostalgia. And my favourite is, um, it's, a, it's a local shark here called a puff at a shy shark. Why it's my favourite is because it's a, it's a very common inhabitant of our kelp forests um, off the coast here in Cape Town. Um, I did my PhD actually looking at our largest bay in southern Africa um, and deploying cameras around the whole bay looking at, at the composition of life in the bay. And the puffer shy shark was the most common shark that I picked up. So it's not like it's particularly... Uh, unusual or, or impressive to people here but it's such an accessible shark and um, so I mean I've worked a lot in sort of uh, shark uh, education and outreach and awareness and it was um, the Puffetta Shire Shark has been such a great intro shark. Um, it has a predator avoidance strategy where it rolls itself sort of into a donut shape and it covers its eye with its tail so that group of Silia rinids, the cat sharks and shy sharks do that um, and in South Africa, we have a millipede called a shongololo. Well, that's the sort of colloquial name. And the shongololo does the same thing. It kind of rolls itself into a little donut shape when you approach it. And it was such a great way to introduce kids to sharks not being necessarily the stereotype that we've all grown to, to know and love um, is the puffer shy shark with its little rolling up to avoid predators into a little donut ball. Um, not necessarily because it's shy, but because it's clever. It's like, can't see me, I can't see you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a donut. <laughs> like you said, a great shark to get kids like into sharks and also adults too. Because what adult wouldn't look at that and go, oh, <laughs> love it. Do we, do we get to hear yours, Isla? Uh, well, I think you can probably guess what mine's going to be. <laughs> I did try to come up with a different answer and I've got a different answer for what shark I would be. Um, but I just... I love Baskin sharks so much. They're the species that I work with the most and they're just big, big gentle giants and there's so much that we still have yet to find out about them. A lot of their life is shrouded in mystery. And, and they are a super shark. They are a super shark. Their superpower is breaching. They are the biggest shark in the world that can breach. Biggest breaching shark. Yeah, so I, I think they are extremely cool. And these guys just really are, they're so passive. And I mean, they're, they're animals that can get up to eight to 10 meters in length. And yet if you move slightly, so you have to be really still and calm in the water. And if you move slightly, they freak out and they're like, oh, and swim in the opposite direction. But they, they've got the same body, body as a great white shark. So it looks like an enormous great white shark takes one look at you and is like, eh, no. <laughs> it turns the other way. Um, but yeah, they are they are cool animals, and hopefully James is going to see some in a couple of weeks' time. Fingers when crossed. He comes up to Scotland. Yes, <laughs> fingers crossed. Keep them around. <laughs> I will try. I'll try my best. Um, but yeah, but that was our final question, um, and it's a great way to end episode twenty, our twentieth episode of the whole tooth, um, and end season two. Season three will be back in the end of august september time yeah well very exciting thanks so much for having us isla and thanks so much for all you do with this podcast i really enjoy it thanks isla and see you next thanks, time thanks isla <laughs> unless isla's fired us probably. unless i fired you <laughs> <laughs> and that is a wrap on season two of the whole tooth we really really hope that you enjoyed this season 
if you did be sure to let us know rate review and subscribe you know the deal and also feel free to share with your friends as well just a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. If you want to find more about us or about our work, you can follow us on social media on at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter, where we'll keep you updated with all of those exciting things that Jade and James were talking about there at the end of the episode. So our storytelling grants, Sharks International, Wild Screen loads and loads of really exciting stuff coming up so please make sure that you are following along and keeping an eye out for that a huge thank you to nicola poulos who did our beautiful artwork and also david knight who created the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now and thank you once again at home for listening as always you can get in touch with us give us a question that you want answered or just say hi uh, by emailing Isla at saveourseas.com. Now we will be going on a little break, but we'll be back at the end of August, beginning of September, with some new and exciting episodes for you. So please stay tuned and I will see you next time.